It is uh, great to be with you here and be able to bring the word and uh, start our new series. We are calling this new series Words to Live By. And uh, it's based on Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things that has been stirring in my heart, if you've been around over the last maybe couple years, you may have heard us talk about this. It's something that, that I've, uh, I've had uh, stirring and kind of rolling around in my heart is this fresh understanding or a, maybe a broader understanding of what the gospel is and understanding the word gospel. And we typically define the gospel as Jesus dying for our sins so we can invite him into our heart and uh, we can have eternal life and, you know, believe in him, that kind of thing. And even though those things are all true, we, uh, we, we know that when we look at scripture, this idea of gospel is much more and it's much broader than just that. Uh, in fact, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion, which is actually a political term that describes a change in power. And this is what it means when Jesus is, we say the gospel of Jesus in, in the scriptures, is it's Jesus stepping into his role, it's his position of authority over all creation, over things that are seen and unseen. And it's really about Jesus bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. That's what, that's what the idea of the gospel of Jesus means. And, um, and so it's this idea and this reference to him being the head over all creation. And so the four gospels are more than a collection of stories describing the ministry of Jesus. They're, they're really, they serve as this announcement that his kingdom has come to earth as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus speaks, he does so with the full authority of heaven. And his words are much more than just witty sayings. His words are more than maybe suggested best practices to live by or, you know, these insights for living. His words bring life. The gospel teachings of Jesus are words to live by. And that's what we want to do is look at some of these things that Jesus says, some of these phrases, and really weigh them out and see how they fit into our life. And so my text today is really at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry because we're going through the book. We're going to start right at the very beginning here when uh, we see Jesus getting baptized and where you see him going into the wilderness and he faces his temptation. And they're, they, they, they kind of flow over two chapters, but they're different scenes to the same, uh, the same act. They're this, this kind of one complete work that's happening. In Matthew 3.16, the scripture says this, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and settling on him. And then Matthew 4.1.10 says this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. This verse follows immediately after the other, okay? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After uh, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, if, uh, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, all this I will give you, he said, 
if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus begins to show us something in here where he says, it is written, and he begins to kind of quote scripture, and he begins to respond to the, to the devil by using the word of God. It's quite a story that, um, it, it's like, uh, it, there's a lot going on in the story. Um, Jesus and the devil are apparently flying around to different places or something. I don't know, it's a little bit weird when we read it. The, whole, uh, the Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove. And the devil is personified and is speaking and interacting. This is not a characteristic that we see when we think of evil. And even in scripture, it's not always personified as, as Satan directly. And there's lots of things going on in this passage of scripture. But this, and it raises a lot of theological questions. Like, why did Jesus need to get baptized? You ever thought about that? Like, why, why did Jesus have to get baptized? I understand why we're supposed to. Uh, why did the Spirit of God lead Jesus into a place where he would be tempted? What's that all about? And if Jesus is God, can he even be tempted? Like, how do you even, how do you tempt Jesus? So the answers to these questions are partially found in knowing this. The Jesus' baptism and wilderness experience serve as the launching point for his ministry. What is happening here is there's something, there's something fundamental happening to who Jesus is. And as he kind of arrives on the scene, and this becomes the beginning for everything else that follows. He, immediately following this passage of scripture, he steps into his public ministry. And this is kind of laying the groundwork, the, the foundation for all of those things. I realize all metaphors are imperfect, and you can kind of have some holes in them. And uh, but I was thinking about something this week, actually, as I was I was going over these scriptures and kind of meditating on them. And I thought I couldn't help but think that uh, of the old classic westerns that I saw as a kid, western movies that I saw as a kid. The plot is it's always the same in these western movies. It goes something like this: There's a powerful evil rancher on the edge of town. And he's got his a whole group of evil cowboys around him. And he's got unlimited resources. He was probably corrupt in the railroad or something like that. And now he's like, he's, he's overrunning the town. He's coming in and taking anything he wants. There's no real way to stand up against him. Whatever he pleases, he does. The townspeople are fearful of him. They're gripped in fear. They can't stand up against him. The, the local sheriff, he's either... Uh, bought by this evil rancher and he's getting paid off and he's in the rancher's back pocket or the sheriff is full of fear himself and unable to stand and, and, and take a stand against this, uh, this evil rancher. And so the townspeople are gripped in fear until the lone stranger saunters into town. And somehow this one cowboy who's got like the best stubble and he's like full of grit, full of courage. He's full of character and moral fortitude. And somehow the townspeople identify him as he's the one that's going to stand up and he's going to do something great. And they have this scene in all these movies where this stranger that rides into town raises his hand and he's sworn into power. And somehow they convince him and they make him and he stands in to become the new sheriff. And he gets the star, he gets the badge, it's pinned to his chest, and he pauses, there's this dramatic pause, and he kind of looks at the camera and he puts his hat on, and he says, 
all right, let's get to business. And he kind of rides off and he defeats this evil rancher all by himself. And he restores justice and peace to the land. And he sets the townspeople free and everybody is happy for the rest of their lives. I don't know if you've ever seen that Western movie. It's every Western movie, okay? You haven't missed anything if you've missed that one. And so there's this idea in this, this picture, and it's almost like this, that um, this idea that it's, it's almost like Jesus is like the sheriff. He's almost, it's like he's getting sworn into to duty. He's getting sworn into service. He's getting his authority put on him. This is really what the baptism of Jesus is about. This is what the wilderness experience is like. Jesus is the sheriff being sworn into power. He's receiving his badge before he rides out to kind of restore law and order. Because as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on him in the form of a dove and anoints him and empowers him and covers him. And then he goes into the wilderness where he overcomes the devil. He overcomes temptation. He rises above. He's spiritually prepared. And the moment he leaves the wilderness, what does he do? He steps right into active ministry. And so we see this. It's like Jesus steps out of the wilderness experience, and this is what he steps into. Right in chapter 4, this is what it says. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus, of the kingdom of Jesus coming to earth as it is in heaven. He is going around from town to town, kicking in doors and taking names. And the demonic forces and the opposition is all of a sudden cluing in that there's a new sheriff in town. And there is something is changing, something is shifting. And the whole region, the scriptures say, it is the entire region begins to take notice. Jesus is shifting something. He's stepping into his authority. He's stepping into his, his, um, his place and his ministry and his calling. I apologize if you're praying this week and uh, you're thinking about Jesus. Sometimes when I'm, I'm praying and I, I picture Jesus and, and I'm in a moment of prayer. And I, so if you're praying this week and you're picturing Clint Eastwood on a horse, I apologize, okay? Uh, you just got to go with it, and um, it's kind of a cool picture of who Jesus could be, uh, so we're, we, we won't fight that one. But I want to take a look at a couple of these things that is happening in the story, and just to get a little bit of a deeper meaning on what's going on and try to answer some of these questions. The first is just to understand Jesus' baptism. So John the Baptist introduces baptism as an act of self-denial and embracing a new way of life. This is where this idea of baptism comes from. This is what it actually represents. It means you're denying yourself and you're going to follow a new way of life. So we understand baptism today. We've, we've done baptism services here. and We understand them as it's, it's us kind of leaving our sinful nature behind. It's turning to a new life. And it's about living in the new resurrection life of Jesus. But Jesus didn't get baptized to turn his back 
on his old life. Jesus didn't get baptized because he's turning his back on a life of sin. There's something else happening here. And part, so why did Jesus get baptized if he has no sin? Well, part of the answer is found in John 6, 38, where Jesus says this, I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. And what we do is when we're trying to figure out what is it that Jesus is doing, we realize that Jesus, everything he does is about building his kingdom. It has intention. It has design. Everything Jesus does is about doing the will of the Father who sent him. Jesus' baptism is not an act of repentance, but rather it's a public statement saying he is going to submit his human will, his human spirit to the higher callings and the purposes of God over his life. This is the same theme in his prayer in the garden. This is on the night he was betrayed, when he's about to face his crucifixion, when he's right on the eve of knowing he's going to be flogged, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be humiliated and spit on, he's going to be put on the cross, he's going to be mocked. This is what Jesus says in the garden, Luke 22. He's praying, he says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Isn't it interesting that Jesus starts his ministry by submitting to the will of God by being baptized? And he actually, he, he starts it that way and then he finishes it with this prayer by saying, I want your will to be done, not mine. And then all those things of the crucifixion and the next days begin to happen. Jesus begins his ministry in the baptism waters and he finishes it in the garden by making the same declaration not my will be done, but the will of the Father. He's baptized because it models the spiritual principle of self-denial and submission to the higher callings of God. In order to follow the way of Jesus, every one of us must make a choice and a decision that comes to self-denial. There's something about when we come into alignment to follow Jesus, we change, we lay down, we surrender to come under alignment with who God is. God is the creator of the universe. We are the created beings. We don't change and bend Jesus to fit us. It becomes the other way around. We realign ourselves to him. And that's what this baptism is about. Under, uh, the other thing is this, is to look at the wilderness. What's, what's the whole idea about being in the wilderness and the temptations and all of this? Well, why did the Spirit of God even lead Jesus into the wilderness before he began his ministry? And one of the things is it actually was to mirror Moses. It's kind of a little bit weird, but the scriptures are full of characters who foreshadow and represent God's bigger story in humanity. And we see this all throughout scriptures. It's a pattern. And Jesus begins his public ministry by spending 40 days in the wilderness, which follows the same pattern of Moses during the 40 years of Exodus, during the 40 years of wilderness, when he's leading the, the Israelites and he's leading God's people into the promised land. And because Jesus mirrors Moses, because he kind of steps into the same patterns, all of a sudden, the Jews immediately begin to recognize him. And this is, this is the people right in the area that Jesus is ministering to. 
and they recognize him as someone significant and someone to be listened to. And this idea of mirroring Moses follows him all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is symbolic of Jesus bringing in his new covenant. The same way Moses stood on Mount Sinai and he brought in the, the old covenant and introduced it to the people. And so people are watching and understanding there's something bigger going on. And this is part of their story. Well, another reason Jesus is led out into the wilderness is to live out the declaration of his baptism. You see, baptism symbolized this submission of his human nature to the calling of God. And the self-denial of the wilderness is an act of living that out. 40 days in solitude with no one else around. 40 days without food. 40 nights without a bed or a roof over his head. 40 nights and 40 days out in the elements depleting the natural strength of his human body so he can fully embrace what he declared in his baptism. I have not come to do the will uh, of my own will, but to do the will of the Father. And Jesus is saying, I made this commitment. I've made this statement. And the very first thing he does is he lives that out. It's like he's overcoming. Have you ever had this challenge where you have been like, it's, it's like hanging over your head and you know you've got to do it. And it's just like grows and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally you do it and you're like, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. I'm glad I did that. And you know now it's behind you. Jesus is right away, he's stepping into this baptism declaration that he is going to live for the will of the Father. And it elevates him and strengthens him and positions him for his ministry ahead. The, the other reason that we see Jesus being led into the wilderness is to spiritually prepare. The Jewish traditions believed that times in the wilderness were a season of preparation. They're a season of, of, of kind of being stirred up and growing that will eventually lead into days of renewal and breakthrough. And this is a very common theme, even in scripture. And so Jesus models 40 days of preparation and spiritual rhythm. He practices solitude and prayer. He practices fasting and self-denial. He meditates on the precepts of God. He fills his soul. He fills his spirit with the things of God. Yes, he's depleting his physical body, his physical self, as he decides, I'm not going to live for my own self, for my own will. I will live for the will of the Father. He's feeding and he's filling his spirit on God's spirit and the things of God. And his 40 days of dedicated spiritual rhythms prepare him for his coming ministry. The wilderness represents intentional spiritual investment. And this is something that perhaps we are not quite as in tune with in our culture today. And I think that the most common thing that I hear pastoring for years is that People, they, you know, sometimes we go through phases and seasons where we struggle in our, our, our spiritual disciplines and what we feel we should do, be doing and prayer and commitment and being with Jesus and all those kinds of things. And I wonder, what does the wilderness look like for us today? Is there any room for the wilderness of focused spiritual discipline in our life? Self-denial is a foreign concept to our culture. And progressives would say, it's even harmful or unnatural. And we don't, we don't actually lend ourselves towards self-regulation and self-denial 
very well. It's not really a natural part of humanity. We, we like to, you know, kind of go the other way. Uh, I know as, a, as a, a parent who's had teenage daughters, still have, to, still have teenage daughters, trying to like get them to self-regulate, just put your phone down. Just try it, honey. Like I'll tell my daughters, just, just put it on the table and just see if it's okay. Can you, can you, are you all right? Can you get by in the next like hour without it? It's like self-regulation, self-discipline, self-restraint, self-control, self-denial. It is a struggle. It doesn't matter. It's all the way through our life. It becomes something we have to face. And it is something that comes along with following the way of Jesus. The wilderness is where we get away from life's distractions. It's where we realign our focus onto heavenly things. And Jesus starts his ministry by getting alone with the Father and realigning his focus and declaring that it is not his will, but it is the will of the Father that he seeks, that he pursues. It's why the Apostle John says, I become less so Jesus can become more. Maybe the wilderness means pursuing some of the more classical spiritual rhythms like prayer or solitude or rest or just reading the word of God. Maybe the wilderness is taking a break from social media or Netflix binges. Maybe the wilderness means shutting off your device, your phone or your computer when you get home. Maybe the wilderness is actually finally booking that appointment to see the counselor. Maybe the wilderness is a discipline to stop the distraction of busyness and the mental, emotional sickness of hurry that we are so used to living with in our culture. Maybe the wilderness is spending less money on skip the dishes and putting that money towards missions. We have a missions line item on our donation slips here at the church. If you didn't know that, there's a donation station at the back. And you can go, you can give with your debit card. How great would it be to say, I'm going to spend $25 less on Skip the Dishes this month, and I'm going to give it to missions. It's about finding ways that we self-deny. We, we, we bring ourselves more into alignment with the values of God's kingdom. So many of the things that help us be in better alignment with Jesus, help us be in alignment with the values of the kingdom, come with an element of self-denial. Could it be we so often avoid going to the wilderness of self-denial because our fears of its inconvenience outweigh our hunger for more connection to Jesus? Jesus models this idea of spiritual rhythms, of of discipline and and, and principles of self-denial that prepares us for greater purposes prepares us to experience and step into God's greater story for our life. Because we receive something greater than we give up whenever we approach the kingdom of God. But there is an element of surrender. There's an element of submission. You can't follow Jesus without submitting to him. You can't follow Jesus without surrendering without realigning your heart. And it's not a one-time thing. It's something we continually revisit. We continually do course corrections. We continually make 
realignment in our life. Well, one key question around this story is, if Jesus is God, can he actually be tempted? And we're going we're gonna to get ready to close. I'm going to have the band come as we get ready to kind of wind up with this message. But if Jesus is God, can he actually be tempted? And it's a complex question. Large volumes of research have been dedicated just to this question alone. Most scholars propose that the answer is found in how we reconcile this, that Jesus is full man and he's full God at the same time. This is one of the things that we see in Scripture. And the Scripture tells us this, that, um, that God cannot be tempted. We would believe that because of the immaculate conception, that Jesus was not born with a sin nature. So there's this idea where, where Jesus as God, he's not tempted in sin nature. He's, he's, he can't be tempted in that way. And so we know that the divine nature of Jesus is not being tempted. But we also know that Jesus is fully human, which likely means the devil is tempting Jesus' human nature. And it's about trying to uh, have that control and that dominion over his human self, to submit his human self to the purposes of God. And that's what is going on in the larger narrative here. Jesus is starting his ministry by laying down his own motives, his own human purposes to say, I will live and serve God and his kingdom. In Hebrews 4.15, it says this, we do not have a high priest. Of course, it's speaking of Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. Some versions say sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Some scholars have decided it's more accurate to say Jesus was not so much uh, tempted as he was tested. And depending on which translation you use, actually it, could, it will read either way, that Jesus was tested or he was tempted in the wilderness. And um, the thing is this, is that they're both taken from the exact same Greek word. So in the Greek language, it's the same thing. We've just, as we've, we've put it a, a little bit differently. And, and some would say that it's, it's this idea that Jesus is being refined. Jesus is going through this, this process. But regardless of whether we use the word tempted or tested, the devil's end goal remains the same. It is to sidetrack Jesus in his calling. It is to get Jesus off of the mission and the role in his ministry that he's about to step into. And Jesus shows us something really important about how to stand up against spiritual opposition. It says this, for 40 days and 40 nights he fasted, and he became very hungry. Remember, Jesus is human. And during that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's human, he's hungry. The devil tries to trick Jesus into taking his divine nature, okay, the devil is trying to trick Jesus into making the divine nature of Jesus subservient to the human needs of Jesus. At the very time, Jesus is in the wilderness following his baptism, where what is Jesus trying to do? Jesus is trying to assure, he's trying to go through the waters of baptism, he's going through the days in the wilderness to make this declaration, 
that his human nature will be subservient to his divine nature, that his purposes in God's kingdom, his calling, his ministry, his identity and who God says he is, that will be the informing value of his life. And he will serve that. And what happens is the devil is coming to him and he's trying to get Jesus to bend his divinity to serve his humanity. And this is a spiritual principle for us to realize. We must bend our humanity. We bend our knee in submission to Jesus because he is the creator. He is the Lord. He is the most high. And we find peace with Jesus. We find strength with Jesus. When we are willing to bend our knee, when we are willing to submit, just as Jesus submitted in the waters of baptism, it's about coming into alignment with Jesus, the God of the universe. And he does it by quoting scripture. Jesus responds to the temptation by quoting scripture back to the devil. You know what's interesting is, remember Jesus is mirroring Moses, and this has great significance to the Jewish people. Well, the three scriptures that Jesus reads back or quotes back to fend off the enemy's attacks are actually the words of Moses when he, they're from Deuteronomy, they're the words of Moses when he is leading God's people through the 40 years of wilderness. And Jesus steps into that and he pushes it back on the enemy. Why? Because God's truth speaks for itself. Jesus is depleted. He's not trying to fight the enemy in his own strength or his own wisdom or his own humanness. He's standing on the truth of the word of God. Jesus gives us the first of his words to live by. It is written. And he models that our best defense to spiritual opposition is the truth of God's word. Ephesians 6, 17 says the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Hebrews 4, 12 says the word of, the, of God is sharp and powerful and alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It says it will cut right through to the very heart. The word of God brings discernment, clarity, understanding. We don't stand against the devil in our human strength or our earthly wisdom. The first words to live by in Jesus' ministry are, it is written. And this is how he steps into his badge of authority. This is how he takes the authority of the Spirit of God on him. This is how he goes from the wilderness, triumphant, not only over the enemy, but triumphant knowing that he has submitted his spirit to God's spirit. And he steps into all of the ministry, all the rest of the stuff all happens immediately following. And I was thinking about, uh, thinking about it tonight in the worship, actually. And the Lord gave me a scripture this morning. We were praying over the church. And, and I, I have this one. And this one's a little bit more specific. This, this, this morning was a little bit more general, but... Just stick with me for just a minute, okay? Just give me your attention for a second. Because I felt stirred by the Holy Spirit 
that some of you that are here tonight have been struggling with loneliness. You have felt alone. You felt alone in your life, alone in your faith. Where are you going? What's going on? You're confused about life and where it's headed and where you're at. And there's this aching, growing, agonizing sense of aloneness. And I was looking at Joshua 1.9. Joshua standing to lead into the promised land. And God says this to him. He says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. For I am with you wherever you go. He's standing on the edge to lead. He's like, I can't, how are we ever going to do it? The enemy is too great, too strong. Can't, it's impossible. Can't do it. God says, be strong and courageous. For I am with you wherever you go. There is truth in Scripture. And for some of you, that verse it could just sink into your heart. It could just, if you could just get that tonight, that sense that God is with you wherever you go. God is with you right now. You may go home. You may be alone in your room tonight. You may be alone in your dorm room. You may wonder where your life is going. But could I just be so bold as to say, even when you're alone, you're not alone. God's Spirit is upon you. God's Spirit is surrounding you. And this is but a season. This may be a time of wilderness. But God will be faithful and God will deliver. And God will sustain you and he will uphold you. And your calling and your purpose right now is to get in touch with Jesus. To get to know him to seek him first. Scriptures would say, seek first his righteousness. Seek first his will for your life. And he will look after all the other worries. He will look after all the other needs. I want to just pray for you. I want to pray that, that scripture over you. We can't fight the enemy. We can't fight spiritual warfare on our own strength on our own will, our own volition, we rely on the truth of God's word. Let's just pause for a second. Would you just open your heart? And some of you tonight identify with that. You know that there's been this growing sense of loneliness in your life. And the word of God would say, be strong and courageous. Jesus would say, be strong and courageous. For I am with you wherever you go. Some of the translations of that verse say, I will be with you throughout your life. And so we put our hope in that. If I could invite you just in this moment of prayer, think about this thought. When you go home tonight, when you're alone 
and you begin to think about Jesus and you pray and you open your heart, that same voice that you begin to connect with, that same presence of who Jesus is in your life, will be there as soon as you wake up in the morning. Will be there all throughout the day tomorrow. Will be there in exactly the same place, in the same spot tomorrow night. And each day you wake up, each day you go about your day, each night when you go to bed, God will be with you. Jesus will be with you. May he grant you May he grant you strength. May he grant you courage to continue forward, to not give up. In Jesus' name, amen.